right. Well, good morning. It's good to be with the church family this morning, especially as we're continuing in our study of the, the book of Genesis. I wonder if you're familiar with another book, a book by the, the name of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Are you familiar with that? The story written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was Picking up my Kindle, I was bored. I was trying to think of something to to read, and I remembered, oh, I've downloaded this. I haven't read these stories in a while. So I started reading the stories, and I came across one of them in which um, Sherlock Holmes's partner, um, Dr. Watson, you familiar with Dr. Watson, you know? Uh, He's talking to Sherlock Holmes, and he's marveling at what Sherlock Holmes is able to do, the way that he's able to solve mysteries, the way that he's able to tell a person so much about them just by, by quickly glancing at them. And, and after a period of discussion, Holmes finally says to Dr. Watson, he's like, listen, there's nothing that spectacular about me. I do the same thing that, that you do. The, the, the difference be, between us is this very simple fact. Um, you see, he says but you do not observe. It's this very um, famous and kind of poignant moment in the, in the story where Holmes is explaining why he's able to do what he can do. He says, everybody sees, and then he shows Dr. Watson how they both saw the exact same person, but he says, I observe, I take in all the information that I am seeing, and, and I combine it with other information that I have, and so I'm able to come to the conclusions that I, that I come to. You see, but you do not observe. That's what Holmes says. And that, that stood out to me because we've been studying the book of Genesis as a church, and I've said from the very beginning that the book of Genesis provides God's answers to life's most important questions. But the thing is this, as you read a book like the book of Genesis, some of the answers that this book provides aren't necessarily obvious right away. You can read the text, but if you don't take the totality of the text and the context in which things are written, if you don't really observe what is being said and what is actually happening, you can miss those answers and you can miss those, miss those truths. And today, as we wrap up chapter 5 of Genesis and enter into Genesis chapter 6, I, I want to I show you the importance of that, the importance of not just simply seeing what's there, but, but truly observing it. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. Now, as you turn there, Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 4 are two very unique chapters. Because the majority of each of those chapters records for us some of the most exciting portions of all of God's word. Those portions of God's word that just grip you and rivet you. Genealogies. Now, genealogies on the face of them aren't that exciting, right? Because they have the names of people, the ages of people, their descendants. And so you read a genealogy and you think, sometimes, at least I've thought this, Forgive me. But when I'm reading God's word, I read a genealogy. I'm like, was God just looking to fill up some pages? (laughs) Like, what's the point of of all of this? Well, as we prepare to look at Genesis chapter 6, I want to say that you can't understand what is taking place in Genesis chapter 6 or that the ultimate answer that God is trying to give us and the truth he's trying to communicate if you don't understand the importance of these genealogies. So let me just run through them really fast. By that I mean in Genesis chapter 4, we find one genealogy, and it's the genealogy of Adam through the descendants of his son Cain. 
That genealogy specifically traces the line of Adam through one of his sons, Cain. The genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 traces the genealogy of Adam through his son, Seth. Two very distinct families, two very distinct lines. And these distinctions that you find aren't just the fact that each of them trace themselves back through a different son, but the type of people that come from each of those lines. So for instance, in Genesis chapter 4, as we read about the descendants of Cain, now first off, you remember Cain, right? He's a bad dude. He killed his brother Abel. He was not a true worshiper of God. And wouldn't you know it, all of his family that comes after him follow in his footsteps, culminating ultimately in this guy named Lamech. And Lamech takes multiple wives. He already breaks the covenant design that God has for marriage. He takes more than one wife. And on top of that, he boasts about murdering two individuals. He says, whereas my great-great-great-grandfather Cain killed one person, I killed two. And so you end chapter 4 in that genealogy thinking to yourself, now, that's, that's a wicked family. That's, that's not a good family tree. But then you come over to Genesis chapter 5 and you read of the line that comes from Seth. And you see a, a people and individuals who walk with the Lord, highlighted by the guy Enoch, who in the middle of the genealogy ultimately is considered so righteous that God takes him from this life into life with, with him. But what's so interesting is that Seth's line, this, this righteous line, this godly line, if you will, it ends with another Lemek. In the first pages of God's word, there's two Lemeks, two totally different guys. Look, look at this Lemek. He's referred to in verse 28, and it says this. When Lemek, different than the Lemek from Cain's line, when this Lemek had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. You guys know who Noah is? Noah and the ark, right? We're going to hear about him more in the coming weeks. He fathered a son, called him Noah, saying of Noah, out of the ground that the Lord God has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. You know why this statement is so important? Because it's revealing to us Lemek's heart. It's revealing to us that Lemek is holding on to the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve that he would one day send a deliverer. And he's prophesying that his son Noah is going to be part of that deliverance. And we're going to see later he's partially right. Now, do you observe what's happening here? One Lemek is wicked. This other Lemek is godly. And so the point of these two genealogies in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 is to show us how from Adam, humanity is basically divided into two groups of people, those who walk with the Lord and those who do not. If you don't see that, if you don't observe that, then you're not going to get what's about to happen here in chapter 6. So now let me read Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. And let me just say there is a ton here, and this is one of the most highly debated and written about sections of all of Genesis, okay? The problem with it being written and debated so much is the things that people debate in this section really have nothing to do with the overall story, but are just kind of interesting facts. So I'm going to avoid some of those today because I want to stick to the main stuff. But here we go. Chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, 
My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now here's the key verse. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Stop there. Like I said, there's a lot happening in these verses. I want to focus first and foremost on some of the main things. Like for instance, when you come to Genesis chapter 5, something has happened to humanity. Did you see it? Look at what's happened to humanity. I just told you that Genesis 4 and 5 have spent all this time showing us how from one man, Adam, the humanity is kind of split into two, the, the, the godly and the ungodly. But then you come to Genesis chapter 5 and the problem is all of humanity is now being cast as what? Wicked and evil. And so you and I should read that and we should say, what happened? In light of Genesis 5 and in light of Genesis 4, what happened to the godly line? Why all of a sudden is all humanity identified as wicked and evil in the eyes of God? Are, are you tracking with me? You see, if you observe what's taking place in 4 and 5, you should be shocked at verse 5 of chapter 6. What's happened here? What's going on? How, how did humanity get to this point? Well, for me, I think the answer is found very clearly in verses 1 and 2. Now, these are debated verses, and so I just want to give you my understanding. Based on the immediate context, everything that I've said up to this, to this point, in verses 1 and 2, we see something happening. We see this group of men identified as the sons of God going and taking and marrying daughters of the sons of man. Now, here's what I understand to be taking place there. I believe that the sons of God are specifically the godly line of Adam. They're the line that comes from Seth. Who's being talked about here are those who should be followers of God, those who are of the righteous line, if you will. What they have done according to the text, is they looked out at the daughters of man, which refers to the ungodly line of, of humanity. And what has happened is that these who are godly, these who are followers of the Lord, have given into their desires because they've seen the daughters of man and they've thought they're, they're, they're attractive. And what they've done is, is what has played out over and over and over again throughout the entirety of Scripture. And that is they give in to their desires. They do what they should not do. They enter into relationship with those who do not walk with the Lord. And so how does humanity now get, if you will, polluted? How is it that the godly line and the ungodly line ultimately join together? It's because the sons of God, those who should have led and who should have pursued righteousness give in to their desires and marry those who they should, should not. And part of the big reason why I say this is what's happening here is because the exact same words are used to describe the actions of the sons of God as were used to describe Eve's actions when she was in the garden. And when it says that Eve saw the fruit, that it was 
pleasing to the eyes, good to eat, and desirous to make one wise. When it says that Eve saw the fruit, it's the same phrase that's used when it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And just as it says that Eve took of the fruit and ate it, it's the exact same phrase that's used to describe of the sons of God taking of any wives that they chose. And so what we have here in these first few verses is this truth being being revealed to us. When human desire goes unchecked, this is your first point in your notes, when human desire goes unchecked, it leads to sin. See, God made you and me, and he gave us desires. He gave us desires. Desires in and of themselves aren't sinful and wrong. He gave us the desire to, for food. He gave us the desire for sex, for companionship, for, for comfort. God gives desires. He creates us with desires, but our desires are created not to be the be-all, end-all. The desires are created ultimately to point us to the giver of those desires. And when you and I give into our desires and we elevate them and our desire to have them fulfilled in a way that goes against what God has designed, then, my dear church family, we enter into sin. This is a text of God's word that shows us how humanity descended into sin. The sons of God gave into their desires. They saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they went after them, and they took them in contrary, contrary to what God would desire. James would later say in the New Testament these words. He would say in James 4, 1 through 3, he'd say, what causes fights? What causes quarrels among you? Basically, he's saying, what, what leads to sin in your life? He says, is it not this? You have desires, and you don't deal with them rightly. And so it leads you ultimately into sin. When human desire goes unchecked, it leads us into sin. Have you ever experienced that in your own life? A desire for something And like I said, desires in and of themselves aren't wrong, but when we take those desires for whatever it is to the the level that and to the pursuit of satisfaction that only God can fulfill, we cross over into sin. And what does verse 5 of Genesis 6 show us? It shows us that when sin goes unchecked, guess what? Wickedness flourishes. That's the second point. When human desires go unchecked, When we don't realize what's happening, it leads us into sin. And when sin goes unchecked, wickedness flourishes. That's what verse 5 says. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth in that some of the intentions of his thoughts, no, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is a pretty sad picture of humanity. But here's the truth. This is all us. This isn't just them back then. This, this, this is us. Let's, let's be honest. This was not just a problem back then. We're all prone to this. My heart is prone to this. When, when I let my desires rule me, when you let your desires rule you, when you go after those things in contradiction to what God has designed for you, you open yourself up not just to sin, but for wickedness to flourish in your life. It's pretty strong words, I know, but... But that's what happens. This is what takes place. Sin always takes us further than we ever intended to go. Now, what we're going to see here in just a moment is what God thinks about all of this. But before we we turn to that, because 
because we're going to find that in verse, verse 6. I do want to, for the sake of some that are interested, I need to address a group of people that's mentioned in the text because I've had people ask me this question, right? There's this group of people that pop up in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4 that are only mentioned in one other place in the entire Bible, and it's the Nephilim. Um, and, and it says of the Nephilim, they were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, I could go really deep into this, but I'm not going to because it doesn't do anything for where we want to go in the text. But I want to just speak very plainly about who I believe the Nephilim are because I'm going to just tell you what the text tells us about who these people were. Because there's been a lot of debate about who they are. Some people have said that they were like uh, superhumans. They were the offspring of angels or demons and women and all this kind of craziness, right? The Bible doesn't say anything about that. Instead, the Bible actually tells us who these people were. Are you ready? Here's who they were. They were human beings who were considered mighty and had tremendous accomplishments. That's exactly what verse 4 says. They weren't supernatural beings. They weren't the progeny of angels or demons and females. It says that they were men. They were human beings. It literally says they were mighty men. The only time that phrase is used, mighty men, is always and only in description of human beings. Not something supernatural, not something other. And the text says they accomplished tremendous things. So we don't know a whole lot about them. We don't even know why... The author references them here, maybe just as a point of reference, but what we do know is, is this. The safest thing to say is this is who they were. Everybody satisfied? Great, let's move on. Here we go. <laughs> when humans' desires go unchecked, it leads to sin. When sin goes unchecked, wickedness flourishes. What does God think about all of this? Verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And then the end of verse 7, he says, based on all this, I am sorry that I have made them. Let that sink in for a moment. Think about what that is saying. This is a hard passage. Um, It's hard on two levels. It's hard theologically because of what's being stated here, and it's hard personally, and I'll get to that last. But let's talk about why this is a hard passage theologically. It's a hard passage theologically because it's describing to us uh, our God who, according to the rest of the Bible, is sovereign and in complete control over all things, who is immutable. That means he's unchanging. We see him here demonstrating potentially regret over something that he supposedly had sovereign control over. Like this passage theologically raises the question, how could a perfect, holy, unchanging, and sovereign God who is supposedly in control over all things be described in this way? I mean, this is a big deal. To have our unchanging God all of a sudden demonstrating a change of heart, potentially? What's taking place here? I think to help us understand this, you all know that when we talk about God, we're talking about a being who is other than us. We are the creation. He's the creator. He is unlike us. Now, we've been made in his image, and so in ways we reflect who he is. But he's not like us. And, and because he's unlike us, because he exists beyond time and space and, and even beyond our world as a creator of it, at times, in order for him to communicate to us, 
he has to use language and he has to use things that you and I can understand. And so what I think what we have here first and foremost is our God saying, I want, I want you to be able to understand some things about me. And one of the things I want to, you to understand about me is that I'm not a disinterested observer in what's happening in the world. That I care about what's taking place. At minimum, you and I should walk away and say, God cares about what's happening in our world. And that ultimately, there are things that you and I do and engage in that, according to this, create great anguish for him, at least, at least as much as you and I can understand, understand it. And so what we discover about our God from this passage is that his heart is capable a complex combination of emotions that are infinitely more remarkable than us, that he can still be sovereign in control over all things and yet and yet feel and experience great sadness and grief over the things that we're engaged in. He may well be capable of lamenting over something he chooses to bring about, And he may be capable of looking back on the very act of bringing something about and lamenting that act in one regard while at the same time affirming that it's the best thing in another regard. An illustration that I came across that that helped me kind of think about this is something that if you have a child, you might have experienced. How, How can God be in control and do something and yet at the same point experience grief or regret over it? Um, I have perfect children. Let me just get that out there on the table, right? Okay, first. <laughs> um, there could be a time where my child blatantly disobeys me, and I have to punish them for that. And my punishment of one of my daughters, let's say, causes her to run away. Because I punished her, she, 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 she runs away. And I may feel some remorse over that punishment in this sense. Not in the sense that I disapprove of what I did because the punishment was, was right, but in the sense that I feel some sorrow that the punishment was necessary and part of the wise way of dealing with my daughter in this, in this situation. And, and, yet, and yet in that punishment of... My daughter, I, I feel that sorrow because it has led her to do what she was going to do, that is run away. But if I had to do it all over again, I would still do the same thing, knowing what the ultimate result would be. So I approve the punishment from one angle, and at the same time, I regret the punishment from another angle. Are you tracking with me? And so here's the deal. If David Wojnicki, the simple guy that I am, if 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 such a combination of emotions is possible in my finite decision-making, it's not hard for me to imagine that God's infinite mind, the infinite complexity of God's emotional life would be capable of something similar, if not far more complex. And so on a theological level, this is hard to wrestle through. But, but for me, more than anything, and this is kind of the, the meat of it, This is a hard thing to consider on a personal level. You see, because ultimately what is being told to us in this passage is that sin and the evil and wickedness it produces is grievous to God, right? I mean, that's that's the point of this. Sin and the wicked and evilness it produces is grievous to God. And here's why this is hard for me to hear on a personal level. 
Um, my girls have not often seen me cry. It's not because, you know, I'm just trying to bottle things up. I just don't cry often, but they have seen me cry at times. And every time that they've seen me cry, my girls have come back to me when they see that, that those tears were, were driven by some distress or some, some pain that I'm experiencing. And they've always told me after the fact, they've said, Dad, that was really hard for me to, to see. That's hard for me to, to witness. And I know what they're experiencing. I remember when my dad's mom passed away. I was probably about in, in high school at that, that time. And I remember seeing him cry over the passing of his mom. And, and, it, and it hurt me to see my dad cry. Why? Because I loved him, because I cared about him. It's why my girls, it, it hurts them. They say, it's hard for me to see, see you cry because, because of that, that connection. And so when I see a record here of the God of the universe, a God who loves his creation, a God who's done everything to care for his creation. When I see him looking at sin and grieving over it, that kind of begins to hit me. Because here's this God that, that if you're in Jesus Christ today, that you say that you love, you serve, and you obey, and you see him grieving over something that you yourself have done. And it begins to hit me that every time that I have sinned and engaged in wickedness, it gets at the heart of God. Do do you follow? On a personal level, seeing this is hard for me. Sometimes we can forget this truth, that sin is grievous to God, but we need to consider it. God hates sin. When you and I are engaging in something that is grievous to God, i.e. sin, for him, he says, it's grievous. And, and here's why I'm making such a big deal about it, because we're image bearers of God. And to be an image bearer of God is to say, I want to reflect the things that God reflects. And, and if God hates sin, if sin is grievous to God, then you know what your response and my response should be to sin in my life and in the world? It should break our hearts. It should be something that we say, we don't want in this world, and we don't want in our lives. And so it leads me to a question to to pause and consider just even right here, right now. Do you grieve your sin? Do you grieve your sin? Do Do you hate sin? Because it says that our God, whose image we have been created in, that's how he responds to it. It's not something to be played around with, to, make, to be made fun of. It is something that is, that is serious. We look back at the people in Genesis chapter 6 and we say, oh yeah, no, look at them. You know, we can wag our fingers at them. But all of us find ourselves in the same, same boat. And now I'm, I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but, but I don't care. Here, here's the deal. Why we have to consider this, like how seriously do we consider our sin, is for two reasons. Are you ready for this? Here's the first one. The first one is this. If, if I don't understand the wickedness of sin, if I don't understand the wickedness of, of my sin, the Bible clearly says I can never enter into the salvation that God provides. You see, it's only when we understand why our sin is grievous that we can then enter into the provision of the salvation that God offers. And so I I sit on this point to say, listen, sin is grievous, and and we want to be serious about it because if you're not serious about it, then you don't understand why you need a Savior. That's number one. Number two, if you don't understand the wickedness of sin, you can't grow as a Christian. If, If you think that, 
while it's true that in and through Jesus Christ as a follower of, of him, that you've been washed clean from sin, if you believe that to be true, that is great, that is wonderful. But if, but if you don't think that sin can't still creep into your life, if you, if you think that sin's not that big of a deal or, or, or you can't fall back into it, then you can't continue to grow. In fact, the Apostle Paul said this to believers in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, put to death what is earthly among you. Do you know what's earthly? <laughs> it's sin. Th- those desires that run rampant and lead to sin, he says, put it to death. There's this pastor and theologian named A.W. Pink, and here's what he said. It's not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors of faith. I thought that was, that's strong language, but it's true. One of the marks of a true follower of Jesus Christ is that we take sin as seriously as God takes it. Because you know how seriously God takes sin? Look at what he says in verse 7. So the Lord said, this is based on the wickedness of humanity, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. This passage isn't just a story about the power of sin and God's feelings about sin. It also tells us how God responds to sin. God does not let sin go unpunished. Like we've talked about that ad nauseum throughout the book of Genesis. This comes up time and time again. Sin does not go unpunished. This is the first time, though, that God's going to deal with the humanity of sin in total. By that, I mean he literally says here, I'm going to wipe humanity from the face of the earth. That's how serious sin is. That's how grievous it is. That's, that's what an affront it is to me that I will not let it go un, unpunished. I'm going to wipe humanity off the face of the earth. We're going to talk about that more over the next two weeks when we look at the story of the flood and all that's involved in it. But, but God's ultimately going to send the judgment of the flood. That's what the rest of chapter 6 says. And, and it might seem harsh that God would do this, that, that all of creation would be impacted by this. But remember, humanity was called to be God's representatives and it failed wholesale to do that. And God says, so, so I'm going to wipe it clean. I'm going to wipe it clean. Sin is grievous to God. He will judge it. And if we just stopped there, this would be one of the most depressing messages that we could consider. Grieve over your sin, I heard Pastor Dave say. God's going to judge me for it. Let's go home. (laughs) But there's verse 8. This is a verse we need to hear. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And as verse 8 on following and following unfolds, it shows us that God chooses to spare a remnant of humanity through this man Noah and his family. God calls him amidst the judgment to build an ark and to take himself and all of his family and the animals and bring them into the ark. And so he comes and he says, I am ultimately going to save you. I'm going to spare you from the judgment to come. And let me tell you, this is the refrain of God over and over again. While sin is grievous to him and while he judges it, ultimately God does provide a way of salvation for those under judgment. God does provide a way of salvation for those under judgment. 
Noah, Noah's going to be the one that it's going to come through. And here's the deal with Noah. Notice this. Noah and his family, they're going to go into the ark. We're going to see this. But here's the crazy thing. They're not spared the judgment. What I mean by that is they have to go through it. The flood comes, the waters come, but God saves them and preserves them through the ark. It's, it's not as though they're, they're spared the judgment. No, they, they're spared it in the sense that God makes provision for them so they don't experience the fullness of it. That story is going to shoot us forward and point to somebody else. It's pointing to Jesus Christ who ultimately came down into our reality and he went through the entirety of the judgment for us. And so while we still experience a physical death, the Bible says, because Christ went through the judgment that we deserve, ultimately we're spared, we're spared the great judgment because Jesus paid it, it all. Let me pull it all together with this. When desires go unchecked, they lead to sin. And every single one of us is guilty of that. When sin goes unchecked, wickedness flourishes. The story illustrates that. When God looks upon the sin of humanity, of which we've all participated, it grieves him. And he has to respond to sin with judgment. But if you find yourself, as we all do in that place of judgment, salvation is there for us which allows us to enter into a relationship with him and then ultimately to turn from our sin. And so my question again is twofold. Number one, do you grieve your sin? Have you yet come to the reality that you deserve the judgment that they experienced back then? And if you have done that, then have you accepted the gracious provision, not of an ark, but of Jesus Christ, God's one and only son. When I was a little kid, I used to read the story of Noah. I heard it in church growing up, and I thought, how unfair. God only comes to Noah, and he's the only one that, that he gives the ability to be spared from the flood. Why didn't he try and do something for all those other people as well? You know what's so amazing? It says in the New Testament, Peter talks about the fact that it was 120 years from the time that God first came to Noah to the time that the flood waters rose. 120 years. Now think about this. What happened during that time? Did you know Noah wasn't just building an ark during that entire time? He was building an ark during that time, but Peter tells us that during that time, guess what he did? He proclaimed to his generation the judgment that was about to come and called upon them to turn and repent from it. Yet they did not listen. What kindness, what mercy, what grace of God that in that generation, Noah wouldn't just build an ark and say, good luck, everybody, we know where we're going, but that he would come with that message and proclaim it to that very generation. It's no different for us today. Same message. Salvation, though, isn't going to come from the ark. Salvation comes in and through Jesus Christ. And if we know that to be true here today, you know, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. You heard Pastor Tony talk about that earlier. 
for a lot of people, it's, it's an important Sunday in the sense that we highlight the fact that life is important to God and we believe that, that all people from the womb to the 103-year-old Vi Robertson are created in the image of God and worthy of life. And yet at the same time, when you talk about sanctity of life, I know from my years in ministry that as I look out at a congregation like ours, in some way, shape, or form, there's numerous lives that have been touched through an abortion. Some who have participated in it and carry the grief and the weight of their sin. Others who even secondarily were a part of it. I was talking to a dear brother in the Lord who said at one point in his life, he just knew of somebody on the streets that he was a friend with and, and that person had gotten pregnant and he didn't see any way for the person to get out of their situation so he just paid for the abortion for them just as, a, just as what he thought at the time was a kind act. And, it, and it, he feels the weight of that even today. You know, I come to you and I say, we should grieve over our sin and we should. But we don't stay there, do we? We don't stay in the grief of our sin. We come to the cross of Jesus Christ and we say, praise be to the Lord, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I guess my main point that I want, I want that for you. And I want you to live in the light of that and I want you to take that to to others. Whether it's the story of Enoch or the story of Noah, this this is the message that scripture comes to time and time again. Salvation is found through the provision that God makes. His ultimate provision is Jesus Christ. So we look to him, we cling to him, We experience the new life in him and we bring that hope and joy to others. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to take in your word even now. Help us to receive it with hearts. Lord, each person here is in a different place and knows exactly, Lord, what it is that they need by your spirit providing that. And so, Lord, would you you grant that? For those who need to grieve more over sin, it's hard for me to pray, Lord, but help them to grieve over their sin. For those of us, Lord, who, who need to, to cling to the forgiveness that is available through Jesus Christ be, because of what he's done for us, Lord, let us cling to that. For those of us, Lord, who maybe in this place for the first time need to confess that we've never done anything with our sin. We've never grieved over it and we've never accepted Christ's forgiveness for it, Lord. May you touch those hearts to confess and believe the provision that Christ has made. But above all, Lord, May we leave this place not being the same because we've heard from you and what your word would proclaim. And so we ask these things now through Christ our Savior and all God's people said, amen, amen.